Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuckaholics? What is happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. How's everybody doing? Are you okay? Today on the show, I talked to Wendell Pierce, and he's one of the great character actors. All right, you know him as Bunk in The Wire. He was in Treme, he was in Selma, he was in Ray. He's a great actor. Recently played Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman over in London, and he got a, a big nomination for that. And we're going to talk about that. Um, but I, I was it was an honor. I ran into him somewhere, and he knew me, and I said, I'd, I'd, I'd love to talk to you. And it was really a, a great conversation. So that's coming up. I did go to the doctor today, or yesterday, I'm sorry. I went yesterday, and uh, this morning... Uh, I'm going to uh, get the lab work, but I, I got the basic stuff. And it's scary, man. I, put, I got my N95 mask on. I got my fucking plastic shield. And I walk in and there's a sort of a pre-vetting experience where they have someone who's dressed exactly like me, only she's actually a medical person wearing a plastic shield and a high-end mask and asking me questions and taking my temperature before I can go to the receptionist window who's also wearing a, a, a visor plastic guard and a mask. I felt like, do you want me to work here? I'm all, I'm suited up. I'm ready. But they're handling it very well, and they're and they're, they're obviously pacing it out. There was nobody there, and my doctor, who I hadn't seen in over a year, or, yeah, she came in. We got to talking. I told her about Lynn, and you know, I I think the the most haunting thing is still that you know did I think it would be with anybody. Did I do all I can? You know, that last week, and um, yeah, but we talked about it and. It's so funny because the, the nurse that came in earlier, they're going over these questions that they ask you to fill out a form, you know, and she's like, uh, do you have feelings of hopelessness? I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> Is it hard for you to enjoy things in life? Yeah. Isn't it for everybody? And she laughed. It's like, you can't, this is no time. This is no time to do a depression screening. I mean, am I like that? Am I depressed clinically? No. Do I feel hopeless? Yes. Is it hard to enjoy things? What things? What are our choices? But uh, but I, I I made it clear that <laughs> that it was all relative to a uh, to what's happening. A reasonable response. But uh, everything so far is checked out. I got uh, she did the finger banging, and I guess that's okay up there. 
and uh, it went on just long enough. Um, and I got uh, you know, all the other stuff seems good. All the stuff that you can check, no lumps or bumps or glands or breathing problems or you know reflexes seem good. Do the little hammer thing on the knees and. I always feel pressured to like, you know, when they do the little reflex thing where you dangle your leg over and they pop your kneecap. Don't you feel like you need to kick it a little bit? Aren't you like, I'm like, do you want me to do anything? Because like, I know nothing will happen if you don't do anything. But they, I don't know, they see what they see. But I always feel like I I kick a little bit, maybe a little too much. But I, it's a natural reaction. It's not, it's not an actual reflex, but it's sort of like, is this what you want? I'll give you this. How about a little of that? Good. I'm just I, I I'm glad I went to the doctor because that shows me that I want to live and I care about my health. And I've been working out with this new uh, trainer and it's doing something different. I'm going to be so ripped for nobody. I'm just going to look lean and good, and uh, I'm not going to be on TV. I'm just going to enjoy it while I can before it all goes. Getting a little achy, getting a little fucking little little uh, crunchy. Bones and joints are getting a little crunchy. It's happening. I'm entering it. Here's the other thing. Now, I don't want to bum anybody out. But, um, you know, along the lines of my conversation with, um, what was his name, Arthur Jones and uh, Matt Fury, and but more, more so Andrew Morantz uh, around, uh, you know, the internet, the QAnon, whatever. And this is not a paid plug, obviously. But I did watch The Social Dilemma last night. And um, that's that's all of it right there, man. That it's all right there. I mean, it's stuff that many of you knew, but I'm finding that many people don't know things. Uh, even smart people don't know things. There's definitely a drop off. There's definitely a shallowness. There's definitely a surface uh, by which people engage surfaces, but the depth may not be there. And look, I, I've got it in certain areas too, but really sort of exploring in documentary style. It's a weird thing. It's a hybrid of a documentary and some dramatic stuff. There's some fiction acting with some actors you'd recognize to sort of make the point. But when you really conceive of the amount of time, money, effort, and momentum, and just sort of high-tech brain fucking that goes into you, you know, maintaining engagement with pages, with products... Uh, is is kind of devastating in the, in its hopelessness. That the fact that all these tools have been created, these out these create that the fact that all these tools have been created, these algorithms that uh, sort of dictate our desires and our behavior, that they've hijacked our uh, our sort of dopamine response. That And a lot of you know this to, about your phones. A lot of you talk and know that, like, I'm addicted to this, I'm addicted to that. But how it's reconfiguring your brain because of your patterns and habits of online behavior and what the algorithm does and how it caters to you, both in information and in sales, is... Uh, that's all of it. That is the big business. It should be fucking illegal because it's just mining our desires and our attention for profit. And, you know, now that it's entered the political realm and the political mindfuck is in, and you have people using these tools that were put together, you know, for, for maybe good purposes, but ultimately for profit, are now being exploited for political ends, uh, it's, it's your brain is vulnerable. 
your brain is really no match for the technological infrastructure uh, that is in place to fuck your brain from the palm of your hand. From the machine you hold in your palm, your brain is being completely fucking hijacked and fucked with. And the computer. And you don't, you know, no matter how fortified you think you are, you're not. Because that's what plants that seed, man. That's that slippery slope. Those are the false equivalencies. That's what puts the valve in there. That's what disrupts any sort of notion of any kind of barometer of actual truth. And these fucking algorithms start hammering it with information and the human brain's no match for it. I'm fortunate in that I don't really buy much and most of my online engagement is about me, but I would watch it. So maybe you can fucking mind your mind before they mine it. They're mining your mind. So maybe you should figure out how to mind your mind or do something. Save your fucking brain, man. Really? I mean, it's scary but you should know what you're up against. That's all I'm saying. How's it going? You all right? Everybody good? Also, I've been erratically doing breakfast time on uh, Instagram. So keep an eye out for that. If you're on Twitter, you follow me on Instagram or you follow me on Twitter. I, I tend to do that sometimes just to connect. And again, to to sort of temper the grief, temper the haunted, temper the loss. I'm still feeling it, you guys, but I just... Um, uh, I, I'm just trying to not let it become hopelessness or depression. I think I'm doing all right. All right. So listen, Wendell Pierce has been nominated for a 2020 Olivier Award, which is basically uh, the Tonys in London. He's nominated for Best Actor uh, for playing Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman. And if you're in the New Orleans area, you can hear Wendell on WBOK AM 1230. We'll talk about that because he was responsible uh, for reviving that historic radio station. And just a heads up, folks, you'll hear the sound change a little uh, about halfway through. It changes a little bit about halfway through the interview because the battery on his mic ran out. So he had to switch to the computer mic. It's not a big deal, but that's what happened. If you, if, it's not your brain. It's the recording. So this is me talking to uh, the lovely Wendell Pierce coming right up. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox 
Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. How you doing, Mark? I'm good, man. It's so funny when, you know, you're just on, just kind of at the door getting coffee. I'm like, oh, what's going to happen? Because when oh, I find out. When you're an actor that I'm familiar with so well, it's like I just assume, like, oh, here we go. There's a scene. Something's happening. Um, How you doing, man? Hey, I'm listen. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I haven't seen you since uh, the Spirit Awards. Uh, that's when we met, actually. All right. That. So uh, my deepest, deepest, sincere uh, condolences. Thanks, man. Yeah. Man. Yeah, it's been a rough couple of months. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, I just wanted to recognize, man. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, life's funny, right? It's it, you know, you don't know, you certainly don't know what the hell's going to happen. I'm telling you, boy. How you I'm doing? Telling you. Good, man. Um, I mean, I can't complain. I can. Yeah. But right. I can't. Right. You know, it's uh, it's just so frustrating, uh, and it gets crazy, and it's uplifting, and and frustrating all at the same time. How so? How's it uplifting? My dad's ninety-five, man. Wow. So, uh, you know, the universe has said, sit your ass down, spend some time with your dad. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, when I finished this, you know, I went and watched the basketball game with him last night and all of that. Uh, when I finished this, I get tested like weekly. Uh-huh. And I'm in New Orleans, so I get tested like weekly. So it's cool. So you can spend uh, so time I can, with so him. So I can, yeah, spend time with him. And if anything pops off, it's within days. I know it, you know. Right. So, um, do you usually live out here? Yeah. Yeah. I live in uh, California. I'm in right. Pasadena and uh, in New York. Uh, but this has also made me go, okay, you know, you've been doing that whole, you know, I'm New York, LA. Uh-huh. After Katrina, I came home. So I'm here in New Orleans. So I'm tri-coastal. I'm like, okay, dude, you're at that point in your life, you know, cash out, get the crib you want to be in. Yeah. Stay in one place. Right. Yeah. yeah. So but, has this sort of uh, uh, forced that hand towards New Orleans or what? Uh, well, I think New Orleans, I'm set in New Orleans. Like, yeah. you know, this is this is the second home. So I think the hardest part is like, I think I'm going to get rid of my place in uh, in New York. I, I, I can't even say it. I have to whisper it and say, I think I'm getting rid of my place in New York. You know, I have not been in that sucker, man. I literally have not been in it, you know? Yeah, and, well, I mean... Uh, my, neighbors, my neighbors always come back. I see them, like, twice a year, and they go, oh, man, we've watched this. We've seen you here. Yeah, and you, and you never... It's I'm, the oldest, I'm, I'm, the, I'm, like, one of the oldest in the building now. Oh, you it's, know? A, it's an apartment. Yeah, yeah, co-op uh, on the Upper West Side. Yeah, I mean, it's a weird thing about having that second place. If you don't use it, it just becomes this thing that's kind of hanging over you. yeah. And I don't know and that it's cool. And it's not even like it's hanging over you, but it's really weird, man. It brings out the best and the worst in you. Yeah. Because the best part is like, I always have my crib in New York. You right. Know, go there in a second. Right. Was that the first place after New Orleans? Yeah, that was, I, I moved from New Orleans when I was 17, bought this crib. This was my first house. You know? Yeah. You know, this is not my childhood home, but after Katrina, uh, I did an, an initiative um, to bring back um, my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. you know, so. Uh, if I'm going to ask people to come back, I said, I'll buy the first one. So I bought the first house. And uh, which neighborhood? Just two blocks from my dad. He's 95. I have around the clock care for him at home. Uh huh. You know, how, which neighborhood is this? Pontchartrain Park. 
And that was totally underwater? It was one of those neighborhoods? Completely. It was one of the deepest places. One of the deepest places. Uh, but, you know, it was a part... Uh, Pontchartrain Park is to New Orleans what Baldwin Hills is to L.A. Uh-huh. So post-World War II, was the one, it was a place for uh, middle-class African-Americans um, as a result of the advocacy of, of civil rights, you uh-huh. know, because you could not purchase a home. It's the height of segregation. Yeah. The early 50s. All those FHA loans, as we're dealing with this racial reckoning and people ask what is systematic racism, you could not. The deal was we'll give you these FHA loans and we'll restrict, make sure that Negroes can't uh, get them. Huh. And so people said, OK, cool. That was that was the restriction that was put on. them. And so how did the, how did that neighborhood come to be then? Uh, the advocacy of a great uh, attorney. Mm. Um A.P. Turo, uh-huh. uh, basing it on eliminating the prohibition of access to green space. You could only go to a park in New Orleans once uh, a week on Wednesday, Negro Day. You were arrested in a park, Mark, a park. Terrible. If you were caught any other day. And, and so this was access to green space. So it ended up, it was a compromise, separate but equal. We're just adjacent to what was then a white neighborhood. They put a ditch between us. I call it the DMZ. And, uh, <laughs> it's still, and, uh, still there? This, yeah, it is. They're now, they're, you know, they're trying to retrofit it and all and say it's about flood protection. I'm like, that's no, not about flood protection. <laughs> it, it was a ditch that didn't go anywhere. It had no outlet. So, um, and they're beautifying it. It's, and so it was uh, separate but equal. So we made something ugly into something beautiful punch train park has a golf golf course right in the middle of it uh-huh. uh, designed by joseph bartholomew who was uh african-american he designed most of the courses in new orleans city really? park and metairie country club but he couldn't play on them oh wow can you play oh uh, i i don't call it playing you know <laughs> <laughs> by the ninth hole i stop and buy the beer i'll drive the cart and buy the beer uh, i cannot play in la man you yeah, know. yeah uh, I, i've never set man, foot on in la course. it's like you know all i hear is can i play through yeah <laughs> yeah <I> play through? <laughs> yeah, get out of the guy. way get out of the way man god damn it. <laughs> i can't even do the little three part in griffith park man i'm like damn man we're all carrying three clubs yeah you know I I don't know anything about that sport, but I know that people like it. So, so how is the um, the 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 renovation going of the neighborhood? I mean, is it did it pick up since you bought? Or? Oh yeah, we're we're like at ninety percent. Oh wow, you know, still issues and stuff like that. But you know, I was telling this to someone the other day. I said Katrina was fifteen years ago. Uh huh. It seems like yesterday, but it was fifteen years ago. Um, it shows you how a, a tragedy. Uh, can be very impactful. You know, everything is pre-Katrina and post-Katrina in New Orleans a lot of the times. Uh, yeah, I did some sort I, of uh, benefit show there. You know, it was. It seemed like it should have been, I can't remember, it was a couple of years after, but it was like happened, it looked like it happened a week ago. I mean, it took a long time. Yeah, yeah. and you know, you have to fight all the elements of, you know, folks who do not, ha- do not have your best interest at heart. Um I'm a capitalist. I'd love to say that, man. I am a capitalist, hardcore capitalist. Okay. And most people that run the capitalist system now are not. They claim to be. See, because true capitalism is saying, hey, man, I want everyone to have access to school. And 
more people in school, the more ideas, the more ideas, more competitive the ideas, the better the ideas, they rise to the top, the better the ideas, the more growth. And then and the pie expands, right? right? The pie expands. Okay. Capitalist, the capitalists now, or the people who claim to be capitalists, only my kids are going to go to school. There's a finite amount of wealth yeah. and you got to get as much of it as possible. So you can and- insulate yourself. Yeah, and fuck everybody else. Right. Hey, man, too bad if you didn't get it, you know? Right. And the fact is, if you get as much as you can, that is proof positive that, uh, you know, you were destined to get it. It was something about you innately that makes you better than everybody else, that there's nothing placed in front of them or no prohibitions placed in front of them, no other systematic shit stopping everybody else. You are, you know, uh, um, destined to be... uh, the person that you are because we did everything possible to get as much as this pie and we got a lot of it. So we deserve to be treated differently. Royalty. As you know, and it's a perpetuation of the monarchy idea. Blue yeah. Blood, right. Literally. Right. You know, we have blue blood, not red. So in your, in, in the way that it works in your mind that, that, you know, your success is, is it's also beholden on you to be philanthropic and reinvest, you know, private money into the, the bigger good. You can do good and do well, but but like in on on a day to day basis, you know how how do you engage you, you know with uh, with with your your ideas and and helping out? Uh, perfect example in Punch and Train Park. I came back here and I said, "Listen, disaster. There was a program, the Road Home program, where you could sell either sell your property back to government because I'm out of here. I'm right. going. I'm leaving New Orleans. Or they'll give you." or you can apply for a grant to then bring back your property. Yeah. Cool. So you had all of these abandoned properties, blighted properties, all of that. I went to the city and said, Punch Train Park is historic. By the way, Punch Train Park just got designated on, on the National Register of Historic Places yeah. because of this uh, two weeks ago. And I said, Punch Train Park is a historic African-American neighborhood that in the height of this recession, Right. In the, in the history, the 50 year history of this neighborhood, we've only had two foreclosures. It's one of the most stable neighborhoods in America consistently with all of the, 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 all of the obstacles placed in front of its residents in the, in the, at the height of segregation in Jim Crow South. Yeah, I said. And still we were able to thrive. We put together a resident initiated uh, redevelopment transfer the properties to us. We will redevelop our neighborhood, right? Isn't this pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps? We'll exercise our right of self-determination. We'll design homes, all of that. And then we'll pay for the property on the back end. When we sell the house, we'll pay you the market value of the property. We negotiated that as residents. What I didn't realize was everyone who comes along and they say, oh, you got a good project, Mr. Pierce. That's cool. That definitely will help you. Yeah. This is in the foundation world. Right. Uh-huh. In the foundation world. They say, yes, and we'll help you. Here's a foundation money to help with the operations and all. Uh, we want two thousand a house. That's all. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, well, I thought this was grant money. Yeah, it is to make sure that things roll along. But when you sell the house, we want to cut. You know, <laughs> And that's the thing, man. Everyone wants to help as long as they put their hand out like that. Right. Well, how, well so how do you determine who gets to have that? 
uh, you realize that you're in a circular firing squad, right? right? Of course. And uh, and you say, okay, cool. Let me get as much done as possible. Uh, I wanted to do a uh, hundred homes. We did forty. Uh huh. Well, and, I mean, some and, foundations uh, are on the level, and you got to be okay with. Oh yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Let's be clear. <laughs> I'm not saying it's just like the police, man. Yeah. You know. Right. Hey, I want police reform, but you know, I love cops, man. I, I know cops, all of that stuff. We know what the deal is. You know? Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not going to, you know, uh, disparage everyone uh, for that, but the foundation, they had things, uh, especially in new Orleans around that time in a disaster, you know, man, that's where you really got to watch out because that's people make a living off of disasters, you know. Well, that was very clear when it you know, almost as it was happening was that, you know, more that there was, uh, you know, private money thinking about like, well, this just did us a favor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We can yeah, rebuild. Yeah, definitely. It. I mean, guy, there was one businessman on the front page of Wall Street Journal said this is the best thing ever happened in New Orleans. <laughs> We're going to be getting we're going to be getting rid of the people we don't want. I mean, he said it. Yeah. You know? no. yeah. Well, they, they, you know, every, they're all saying that it's all pretty much out in the open now, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, if we, if we ever get through this, we're going to know exactly who all these fuckers are because you're not going to be able oh. to put that back in the bottle. Man, you know, let me ask you a question before we get into politics, because I read somewhere in some of this stuff that you actually did a, uh, a production of Waiting for Godot that took place on a rooftop or was set on a rooftop in during Katrina? Yes. Uh, Whose we, idea was uh, that? The, the director of the Classical Theater of Harlem sent me a photograph of two guys in the water um, in New Orleans. Uh-huh. And he said, I saw this photograph and I thought of Gogo and Didi. Wow. Right? And yeah. I, do you want to do this production? I said, yes. So the stage was set up where we filled the stage with 15,000 gallons of water. Oh my God. And had a rooftop coming out of the water with a hole in it. And we made entrances through the water. It was like one of those above ground pools uh -huh. that we kind of uh, put the a proscenium stage front in front of it. So we had the water and the rooftop and we did the production. Oh my really God. Really successful production. And then uh, artist Paul Chan said he went to the lower ninth ward. And when he saw the destruction, the void. It made him think of the void as the description at the beginning of Waiting for Godot. Every production that he had seen of Waiting for Godot, he saw it actualized in the Lower Ninth Ward. And that's when he said, we should do a production here. So we took that production we did in New York in 15,000 gallons of water. We're coming on a rooftop. Then we did it literally in the epicenter of Katrina, the destruction and on this corner uh, in the middle of the disaster. And we invited people there. And I made an entrance from like two blocks away. Wow. And you could hear over the speakers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> out of the silence you, and out of the darkness, you hear this breathing and hustling. Yeah. <laughs> running, and you see me arrive like Omar Sharif and Lawrence of Arabia <laughs> from the distance coming in. Yeah. And we did the play. In the Lower Ninth Ward and Gentilly, two two different weekends, free to the public as an art project, and it was one of the most cathartic moments of my life because you had all of these people from disparate walks of life, yeah, rich and poor, white, black, uh, just you know, from all over, lawyers sitting next to longshoremen, and one of the most cathartic moments was when I turned. We were all in the same boat, and I turned, and there's a prophetic line in the play. 
at this place, in this moment of time, all mankind is us. Let us do something while we have the chance. And it was just, it floored us every night because we realized that it, you could not get a truer line. How do you not, how do you not start crying every time? Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I did not stop myself from crying every time. And what happens is that that play speaks to, it was written out of, you know, um, Beckett was in the midst of the Nazi occupation. Uh, you know, he hid for like two, two, two years. Uh -huh. He wrote the play during then. Uh, Susan Sontag did a production in the middle of uh, the Balkan War. We'll just, and it just rings out in the midst of the greatest crises in humanity. Uh -huh. And at that same resonance, that same resonance in New Orleans, post-Katrina, uh, it's about humanity. And it's, and it's almost uh, what we're in the middle of right now. Yeah. At this place, in this moment of time, all mankind is us. Let us do something while we have the chance. Yeah, it's so, I, I, it, it felt to me that just when I, pictured it that without reading any description of it that as, as an artist that it would be some sort of kind of transformative experience that you you never uh it changes you permanently oh absolutely especially in the midst of that i was standing when i said in the lower ninth ward i'll never forget all the uh, the moorings of the homes that have been wiped away where people had drowned mm. it felt like a graveyard and mm -hmm. i was standing on a stoop of, of a house that was completely gone in the midst of this field. And to say that line standing on that hallowed ground where so many had died, and I would let it just sit for a moment because it's almost like a moment of silence yeah. for the humanity that literally had died in the place where we were doing this play. Um, it, it was, uh, uh, people speak to me uh, about it to this day. You know, I had a chance to see that. I'll never forget, you know, Oh. And it just reminds you of the role of art. Art is to the community what thoughts are to the individual. When you roll around at night going through all the things that you're going through in your life, reflecting on who you are, where you hope to go, mm. who you hope to become, your strengths, your weaknesses, your triumphs, your failures. What those thoughts are to the individual, art is the forum for that, for the community as a whole, where we reflect on who we are, where we hope to go our strengths, our failures. We decide what our values are, and then we act on them, mm. hopefully. And that's the role of art. Entertainment is just a byproduct. Yeah, and yeah, and there's a lot of that byproduct. I, I would say, yeah. you know, byproduct's a, a fairly good explanation because that can also uh, encompass garbage. <laughs> yeah, yes, right. <laughs> byproduct. <laughs> that's the yeah. stuff you throw away. You know, that's right, it. right. But right. that's also what you know, that's what that makes the money, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. So when did you you start to, you know, put that together in your mind? I mean, what was your uh what was your arc as a you know, you, you grew up in this neighborhood and your old man you probably uh what what was his background? What did he instill oh, in you? That, you know, my father, seventeen years old, living in the Calliope projects with his mother. Uh, and, uh, he goes off to war, to World War II, mm. comes back and, uh, marries my mother and 
he'll never forget when he came to Pontchartrain Park. He talks about it. That's all he talks about. I remember when I came back here and I bought my house. That was such a seminal moment for him. Yeah. And my mother was a school teacher for 40 years. So priority on education and understanding that you have a life that uh, you need to focus on fully. There are those who do not have your best interest at heart. That was the thing that prepared us for the virulent violence of segregation and racism and all of that. Just steeled us to say, hey, what do you want to do? Focus on that wholeheartedly. Educate yourself because that no one can take away from you. That is your first, your greatest wealth. When the fir- one of the first wealths you can get is a wealth of knowledge. Mm. And so my parents really focused on that. There's a wealth of knowledge, right? So richness was always uh, um, uh, measured by knowledge, right? You know, do you know about this? You don't? Oh, shit, you need to find out about this. So I grew up, that was the whole thing. You know, I, my peer pressure was all about, man, you don't know what? Mm. Mark. Yeah. <laughs> you're a comedian you never heard of lenny bruce right yeah, you you bullshitting right you know yeah you you know you have have a sense of history and all so that's how i was sent out into the world that that was kind of like uh the the norm of the community you know it lends itself people call me an activist and stuff and i'm like wow I, I never thought of it that way my whole thing is kind of like you live your life knowing that there are those who do not have your best interests at heart and you steal yourself with the tools given to you with the knowledge that you've acquired. And also, I think that it had something to do with the, the fight that you're, you're, it wasn't necessarily a fight, but your dad coming out of, you know, a still sort of like segregated racist, you know, organization in the military, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and then my father got, got awards, you know, his, his unit was, uh, his unit, uh, won, uh, medals, right. Accommodations in, uh, in Saipan. And he got back, uh, his papers were behind him. He got back through Fort Hood in Texas. And he told uh, a, a whack officer, female officer, hey, I think we won some medals in Saipan. She said, yeah, right, you. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he was pissed off. Cut to a couple of years ago, my mother was still alive. This is like 2010. Oh, you know, we got a letter from the army. Your father's unit got all of these medals. And your father was so mad. He's like, I don't want them. So I want to, uh, you know, we should follow up and get these medals for you, Dad. I'm like, all right, let me see the letter. And my mother brings me a letter from January 1945. And I was like, what? <laughs> oh, my God. I was like, wait, I thought you received this yesterday. She's like, no. So, And I went to the World War II Museum and uh, Senator Mary Landrieu at the time, she helped me get my father his medals. You got, got him? His medals in, in 2010. And I'll never forget, man, you know, my father was, you know, Oh, he's like, yeah, he got his medals. Yeah. Cool. Was he happy about he was still, it? He's like, man, that woman, he wasn't <laughs> mad at the country. He was mad at that woman. <laughs> that woman wouldn't give me my medals. And I was like, shit, I don't want them, you know? Yeah. And so he got his medals, man. So it it was, um, there's an advocacy in a, uh, that was bred into me and nurtured in me out of necessity. Right. That's what I'm saying. A- that was my point was that it seemed like the, that your family, that your father and, and, and that generation, if they could pull it off, really kind of establish a black middle class. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Out of my neighborhood, uh, the first black mayor, Dutch Morial, his son, Mark Morial, who mm-hmm. became mayor. He's now national president of uh, the Urban League. 
I grew up with Lisa Davis, who was uh, the director of the EPA under Obama, mm-hmm. our first black DA in New Orleans. Uh, I grew up with him. Right. Um, uh, Terrence Blanchett, uh, who uh, great Grammy Award winning musician and composer. And, um, and he actually composes for films, does uh, most of Spike Lee's film and Perry Mason, which is on right now. He composed that Academy Award nominated also. Mm. Uh, yeah, so. Well, because because you've got that pressure from both sides, you know, you've got, you know, the the sort of institutional racism and white community wanting you to fail. And then you've got, you know, a different class of the black community, you know, putting mm-hmm. their own anger on you, you know, for right, how you yeah, classism, you know, and that's why my I think that's why my parents always said, if you notice, they never said anything about race. They were like, listen, there are going to be people who do not have your best interest at heart. Right. So you you accepted people or face value, you know, that for whatever rationale, some people are going to try to, you know, they're not going to have your best interest at heart. But what you do is when those people were identified, when you identify those people, yeah. don't give them any more energy, push them aside, work through them, go around them. You know, that that's just one less person you have to worry about. You don't right. have to ch- Which is really interesting in this reckoning. Because I guess I'm the cynic. Sometimes I'm the cynic, but uh-huh. it brings me to the fact that I'm not here to educate, man. Yeah. I got 20 summers, you know, with middle age and stuff. And you start going, I got 20 summers left. Right. I got that from Jennifer Lewis, man. I heard her say that. I was like, damn, that's right. Yeah. Right. Of course, we hope for a lot more. But, you know, I got 20 summers left. Yeah. So am I going to waste my time on trying to educate this cat to his, you know, implicit and explicit biases and stuff? I'd rather just deal with changing uh, the policy. You know, I, I'd rather try to change qualified immunity. Where you know the cop can shoot you and say, "Hey, man, I was in fear for my life." But he was running away. I was in fear of my life, right? Yeah. That gives them qualified immunity. Something that was. Uh, I'm always a, a in doctrine. fear for my life. When they- right? Yeah, <laughs> and it's and it's literally a legal doctrine, you know, sanctioned by the Supreme ah. Court in the '80s. That you know everyone knows. We get rid of that. People will have to go. Oh man, I can't just say I'm in fear for my life. You have to show uh, just cause for a shoot. I'd rather change that than say, hey, man, uh, you know, when I'm stopped by a cop and they say license and registration, I have to be careful. If I go for my wallet like this, I could get shot. Yeah. And if someone says to me, you know, hey, man, really? I don't understand that. Why? You're either feigning ignorance or you really are fucking stupid, you know? Yeah. Or, you know, I don't have time. I feel like, you know, people always say, oh, man, you know. I've had my white friends call us. Man, we got to have a conversation. I'm like, man, we don't have to fucking have a conversation. You know what the deal is? I'm trying to change this policy over here. You know, we'll talk about it. See, we got a lot of time. We got a lot of time. Well, I talk. think that that's interesting because that's what's happened to a lot of people. Is they know they always knew, but for some reason, what you just called the reckoning is now they. I I, I think finally the empathy has connected, and now they understand right. it with their heart. I mean, to intellectually get it. Right. And they understand it with their heart. Right. I think see, that- but, see, and that's why I have to say now, now you see, I, I'm part of the problem, right? Because mm. I'm being so cynical uh-huh. and I don't have time for people's, uh, you know, epiphany. You no, know? but, but and no, I, should, I don't think and so. I should say, and I should, and I, I should apologize for that. I should accept the humanity and people's epiphany and coming to it. But I'm reminded of a night in Chicago, right? Rush Street, I'm coming out, I'm trying to hail a cab. <laughs> Get this, man. Yeah. I'm like, damn, the cabs are passing a brother by. Right. You know what the yeah. deal is, yeah. right? And I'm like, damn. So they, these, these couples come out of a bar, and I say, hey, man, 
as a joke, and I'm drinking. I said, hey, man, when do you good white people hail a cab? Right? <laughs> yeah. And the dude says, oh, man, that's fucked up. Yeah, man, I'll do that, right? And he hails a cab for me. His girl goes, I don't understand. He goes, don't worry about it, baby. No, I really, I don't understand. Why does he need us to hail a cab? And he's like, please shut the fuck up. <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm like, man, that's cool. He goes, no, man, come on. You can tell... <sighs> And he got so upset with his girlfriend, yeah. right? Because yeah. she was, she earnestly was saying, I don't understand why. And he was like so embarrassed by that. Like, yeah. Man, she knows. That's some bullshit. But it's, and so I have to say that, you know, I'm complicit if I don't allow people to have that human moment of empathy and epiphany. Right. When something they knew intellectually, and maybe it was even subconscious, comes to a conscious state and connects with their heart. And so I, I'd say to all my white friends and allies, yes, I will have the conversation with you. You don't have to have a at least, I'm not telling you. At least let it be over a nice fucking meal, you know. It could be or a, a good, drink. It, it could be a, a it, you could be a short conversation like it's yeah. about time. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Do you have a lot of siblings? How many people in there? I have three I had it was three of us, two older brothers. My oldest brother is deceased. And I have uh, one brother and who went to West Point. Wow. And uh, yeah, went to West Point, had his military career. And then he went into telecommunications, which I was like, telecommunications? What does that mean? You know, yeah. He was a military attache in Belarus. I was like, what is a military attache? He goes, mm, uh, a military attache. Right. And then he leaves the military and he goes into telecommunications mm. for XO Telecom on mm. the West Coast. And yeah. he has to do six... And, you know, they, they do a lot of work in Asia. So he goes to Asia for a couple of months. Come, I'm like, man, that sounds like some CIA shit. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah. Then I realized, <laughs> what is a military attache? He goes, man, come on, man. You know, every embassy, that's all we're doing is spying on each other. Right, <laughs> I'm like, right. oh, shit. Wow. I said, do you? He goes, no, I mean, I've worked with some of the guys. Yeah. For I reason, know people. Not, yeah. Yeah, I know people, but I'm not. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, but he's not that anymore. He's in, uh, he's in, he's at PBS now. Oh, wow. Okay. So now yeah. he's, uh, now he's paying his karmic debt. Yes. So like, I guess my question is though, like, when did you decide that? Because, you know, you're, you're such a, a well-rounded actor and you can, you know, you're a great character actor and, you know, you seem to have a real, you know, passion for the craft and it's important to you. When did you realize that that was, you know, given your background, that that was going to be the thing? I kind of knew when I was young, uh, I wanted to be an actor. I, I went to performing arts high school here, New Orleans Center for Creative Arts, uh, at, uh, 13, 14, uh -huh. I was playing football and uh, all of a sudden I decided uh, they came recruiting for it. And uh, me and my mentor, Elliot Keener, who was the teacher there, we just clicked in the class. And then I went there and they were serious about training. We didn't do plays. We just worked on scenes. We worked on text, worked on our voice and movement and uh, uh, theater history, you know, so it was a real serious approach to it. And, um, you know, while I was there, Winston Marcellus was there and Harry Connick Jr. When I left, Anthony Mackey came along in the theater department. So it was a real serious school. I think one day somebody's going to do um, uh, a story on that school. It, it was a real incubator for talent. Um, yeah. Uh, here in New Orleans. Uh, so and that prepared me to go to Juilliard. And I, what I really loved about that, I loved training because uh, I realized it was a tangible thing. It wasn't happenstance. Right. You know? Uh, it wasn't. It was approaching it from a way of 
giving you uh, skill sets that you would be able to work in uh, in many different situations. So I, to this day, have prided myself on trying to be as diverse uh, as possible in my career. I do a play, uh, a television, and film a year. I try to do one of each a year. Uh, the trifecta, I call it. Well, so, is that is that something that you know Juilliard instilled in you as the, the the sort of work ethic of it? That you know, as a working actor and a you know a guy with a you know a uh, uh, a reliable and practical skill set that they gave you that you should spread it out. Uh, yes and no. Uh, yes, because it, it it gave me the skill set, and I came to the conclusion that what would work best for me is to make sure it's varied and different. You know, if I just try to have a film career, I just try to have a theater career. I actually moved to LA because I couldn't get cast in plays in New York because they were always looking for people with uh, visibility. They're looking for name people to play the lead. So I said, let me go to television. Let me get out to LA, do more television and film and get a name and then back and do, uh, and come back and do plays. Um, but, you know, I was in class with Brad Whitford you know, Brad Whitford was uh, in my class at Juilliard. And uh, so I would say, and, and he's like that himself, you know, and all my classmates and it, it, it's varied, you know, it gives you the ability to do all of those things. And I said, I'm going to punch that up more than uh, most actors do. Uh, we also had a saying that they were training us for a theater that didn't exist because they were training us in the, in the sense that the British, that we were supposed to go to the national theater, you know, and do a repertory of different plays. And that doesn't exist in America as much as it does in, in Britain. Because I've talked to other people from Juilliard. I mean, and, and you know, it's 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 no, they don't fuck around. I mean, you know, like you, they they kick people out. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I remember I remember a teacher telling someone, "With that S, you'll never work in the American theater." Wow. Like with that S, one fucking letter, he can't. Say, he has a man. Oh, they they, they were tough. You know, and some people it's, it's it changed because they thought it was a little too militaristic. You know, uh, it kind of set right in the pocket with me coming from the football world. It was like a coach getting in your face going, what the fuck was that? Yeah. You fucking get in there, you know. So uh, I kind of responded to all of that militarism. <laughs> uh, and, and Juilliard, going to Juilliard, the one thing I knew getting out of Juilliard was the fact that I would never encounter anything in the business that would fuck with me as much as this. <laughs> Is, did that turn out to be true? Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, yes. You know, I'm like, I'm prepared for that. Oh, that's some bullshit. Let me direct you, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it emboldens you. Yeah. So yeah. when you came out here, the plan was to, to get some, uh, box office, to get some cachet. Yes. And then, uh, I would be able to, uh, do more work in, uh, in New York. That has worked out, you know, that has worked out. I came out and listen, I, you know, was kind of, uh, you're you're a troubadour, you know, yeah. all these television shows and uh, parts in films and all. And uh, that gave me the cachet and the recognizability where people would then consider me for roles in New York. So you never went through a period where, you know, you were frustrated by the roles that you were getting in, in L.A.? That like the goal was always to go to New York and do theater? Uh, I, I knew I didn't want to become a theater snob, you know, only theater, you know. Sure. Television and film is bullshit. I realized that um, that happens when people, they don't realize it's about good work. It's about good writing, you know? In any medium, you could do some bullshit. 
right? It's really about good writing mm -hmm. and, um, and good material. So I started to focus on that. But I went through a period where I did every bad sitcom pilot. We're like a string there. Yeah. And uh, and then I got known like, oh, well, Wendell's available. He can do this, you know? You know? And I was like, baddie, baddie, baddie. Yeah. yeah. You know? And uh, and I was doing, and, and it re reminded me, you have to always remember, employment doesn't define you as an artist. It's easy to understand that when you're unemployed. I'm unemployed, but just because I don't have a job, it doesn't mean I'm a bad artist. It just means employment. But when you're, when you're employed and making a lot of money but doing some bullshit, you have to be able to look in the mirror and go, employment does not define me as an artist. Don't think you're doing good work as an artist just because you're employed and making a shitload of money. Right. And I'll never forget when this final pilot didn't get picked up. I did about five in a row. And I told my agent, no more sitcoms. No more sitcoms right now. Nothing against sitcoms. You know, I wish I was on Seinfeld, but this shit is not Seinfeld. Right. And um, they said, okay. And the next job I got was The Wire. That changed my career. But it also gave you, like, that That was a nice couple of years, huh? Yeah, man. Uh, the Wire changed my career. It was, it changed my life. Uh, got to know great people. It was always about the work you do and the people you do it with. And um, uh, we were able to change television. That writing was just great. It, 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 it humbled me because we never got awards, right? Right. Really made you appreciate the work itself. I look back on the wire. Our last season, we were praying we didn't get a, nomi a nomination. <laughs> you know, we were like, "Let's go out without a nomination. That would be great." And did that and happen? And it did. It happened. That's it. But that, like the 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 fucked up thing about that, that should have gotten a Pulitzer. Yeah, we got a Peabody. I think. Yeah, the we got we got a Peabody, and it should have got a Pulitzer. For me, that's the real badge of honor. You know, it's the fact that the work itself is so appreciated decades after now it's 20 years man yeah why i started 20 years ago and that people i meet people every day that that are seeing it for the first time you know or they are huge fans that have um that we can talk about uh any episode or any year and i'll give them a piece of trivia or something they didn't know and it's like peeling back. It's like an Easter egg that they didn't know about. What? You know? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and they go back and watch the whole, you know, the whole thing over again uh, with a different appreciation. I remember when so, I did it, I did it like I I binged it early because I think I feel like um, when I watched it, like I remember watching two to three episodes a night alone and I was in New York doing a job on on radio. But I just I just couldn't stop. I just kept watching it. And it was, and I did it all at once, and I filled my head up. It was like three week process or something. It was great. And you know, we were so separated in that. You know, at least I was. Like, I never had anything to do uh, uh, on the criminal side. You know, being a homicide detective, you come in after everything is over. Right. So I watched the other part of the show like a huge fan. Right. Yeah. You know, I never had a scene. I never had a scene with with Avon Barksdale. You know, the great Wood Harris. Yeah. I yeah. Never, uh, I was only in a courtroom with Idris. You know, we didn't have any direct scenes. Yeah. And so I watched 
all of those like a fan, you know. It's, that's it's wild good. about that's wild about acting, and I've noticed a little bit in my limited experience is that you know you do your shit, but you don't know how that's going to come together. You don't know what the other people are doing. You don't know any. You don't even sometimes you don't even know how to how exactly. I mean, I can see how I fit in on the paper, but I don't know how yeah, yeah. <laughs> how it's going to look. Yeah, and you're like, oh, you're pleasantly surprised sometimes. Like, oh shit, and you're like, <laughs> yeah, oh. I'm a linchpin. I'm, I'm a linchpin to the whole plot. Oh shit! <laughs> yeah, oh, so movie is on. You know, when I give him a message, there's a message for you, Mr. Jones. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, it, it's you. The music swells. Boom, boom. <laughs> oh shit! It was me. I gave the message. And so, but over the over the time now, like the the wire was was great. But like you've had this opportunity, and you know, in both I think film and television, to work with uh, a lot of great people, directors, other actors, and I mean, uh, you're one of yeah. those guys. You like, you know, it's almost like you know. I was reminded, like, um, you know, because. Like, for some reason, it got in my head this morning, like, you know, there are these great character actors, you know, like Ned Beatty, you know, like these guys. Oh, man. Definitely. You know, someone I was thinking about the other day, Ed Asner, man. Oh, yeah. The ultimate to me is someone who had one of the briefest careers because he lost his life at an early age. John Cazale. Oh, yeah. John Cazale did four movies. Godfather. Yeah, right. Godfather. Two, uh, uh, Deer Hunter, and um, Dog Day Afternoon. Dog Day Afternoon. He actually did one more, which was great. Which is he's in the conversation. Oh yeah, five. Uh, you know, historic movies. You know, and uh, he lost his life at an early age of cancer, man. And it's like, you know, that's it, man. I I hope to look back on my you know, uh, to a body of work. Well, you yeah. got one. I mean, you're, cause you like, I my point was you're that, you're that guy, w- which is a great place to be where you, when you show up in something, if people don't know your name, they're like, there's that guy. That's the guy. Yeah, right, yeah. He's in, I, he's not... in everything. That guy. And yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. And what happens is the wire helped that immensely. And so, you know, the wire, Ray Donovan, I did Selma. Yeah. Um, you know, Malcolm X. Yeah. Uh, comedies like, you know, um, Horrible Bosses. and Sure. I you were in that bus movie, the Spike movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. Get on the bus. Yeah, that was yeah. great. Uh, yeah. and, and Malcolm X worked with Spike twice. I actually worked with Woody Allen twice. On. Uh, showing up on uh, uh, Manhattan Murder Mysteries. Yeah. And uh, I forget the other one. You know, every once in a while, you know, Woody, he'd get. You'd be shooting films, and then he's just like, "Oh yeah, those we've worked together already." So I need somebody here in this cafe, you know. Yeah, I need her, I need him. Yeah, and he just put me in. Well, when you work really with good. directors, like, because I've talked to some people that you know, I imagine that the process of theater in terms of the relationship with a director is probably a little more rewarding than film. Is that correct? Um. Not when you have a good film director. Uh huh. What makes that? What makes someone a good film director? A, a good film director knows what you need as an actor. You know, like what you know you need to service, uh, service the role, uh-huh. and they'll allow you to find that because they're dealing with a whole bunch of technical stuff. This the looking up, or if they don't have it, they 
they know what to say to you to remind you this is where you're coming from, this is where you're going to, because mm. we're out of sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a good film director, because he's multifaceted, he's you know multitasking, will make sure you're not shooting the scene like this. You know, I told you, yeah, of I love it. You're like, hold oh, it, cut, Wendell, you're out of frame. Come here, yeah. Let's look at the monitor. You see, I understand that impulse to come over to him to get in his face, but you see where the camera is, right? I need you to stay in the frame, yeah. You know, sure. You know, I don't need you to go right at that moment where you're about to kill him. Go, I'll fucking kill you, right? Yeah, <laughs> you like stay still, out of frame, yeah. You know? Uh, come and see it so you can you know and that and that's good because in theater you know where the edge of the stage is you know when you're out of your life yeah you know? yeah and the director needs to do that because they're the outside eye there's some directors in film that know nothing about acting and uh they allow you to do your work and they'll come and tell you i need i need to understand in this moment why he makes the decision that takes him for the rest of the film mm. and like, Oh, okay. He gives you the idea of he, he, he knows what he needs right in the moment. And he knows that you're skilled enough as an actor to create all the things necessary within your way of working to get there. Right. Right. And he'll admit or she'll admit, I can't give you that because right now I'm looking at, you know, the, you know, the lighting, I'm looking at the shot, the movement on the camera, and, you know, I hired you to do the acting, right? Uh, and so I can appreciate those directors. Right. You know? But a director who knows nothing about acting and then can't tell, can't give you anything, and they're just technical, those, uh, those can be very frustrating. And that happens, in, and happens on the stage, too, because what happens on the stage is you have directors who then want to make sure that the audience know, knows that the director put their hand in this moment, you know? Right. All of a sudden, you're like, I'm playing this. And I said, yeah, but right as that moment's going to happen, the set is going to swing from left to right in the stage. I'm just like, why? <laughs> why? Let the moment do it, you know? Yeah. I t- yeah, you're, you're, you're my daughter and my sister. What? Yeah. You know, that's enough, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the set doesn't have to fall apart in your idea of, you know, man. I, I saw a play, and I'll never forget, and something between scenes, the lights would go half, but there was something bothering me in the lights and I couldn't tell what it was. I couldn't tell what was going on. And then I realized halfway through, between every scene, the director had put a faint image of a clock with the, <laughs> with the second <laughs> yeah. the hand going around. I'm like, we know time is passing, man. We don't need a fucking light telling us, you know, as time goes by, I'm like, this is the director going, I got to put my hand in it. And that's really bad in the theater. Uh, you know, it's just kind of like arbitrary direction just so that people know it's a directed moment. It's overcompensating. Yes. Yes. But my greatest, my greatest triumph in theater happened this year or this past year. And that was doing Willie Loman in death of a salesman in London. Oh, yeah, you got nominated for the Olivier, huh? Yes, yes. And that was... Oh. Why? Why Why that play? Why that guy? What? What is it about it? It is the greatest, you know, the closest thing to acting is psychology. Acting is study of human behavior. Yeah. It's really the study of human behavior. And that case study of Willie Loman and Death of a Salesman... Uh, 
goes very deep if you give yourself over to it uh it triggers it you do some personal reflections and you tap into some of your personal issues that this man has at the same time um and it uh it can really affect you like what are my best days behind me mm. uh all the people i've heard Right. Will I ever be able to redeem that? Hmm. Um, you know, I always think of uh, the lyric from My Way. Regrets, I have a few. Yeah. Regrets, I have many. Sure. <laughs> so that's something that at a certain age that everybody, you know, everybody, you know, if they're willing to look at themselves can find it. Yeah. And that's a real, and I can't believe he was like 25 or something when he wrote that, Arthur Miller. Yeah. He tell, it's just the progression of that. And it, it's, a, it's the first memory play that delves into the connection of your memory and who you are. The expectations that you have of yourself mm. that you've missed, that you have to. And the scary thing is if you really go into it, you don't want to make the choice that he made, you know, which is they tell you right up front at the beginning of the play, it's called death of a salesman. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We're going there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And, uh, and if you truly play a role, when you're playing a role, you can never, you, the character is always your hero, right? Yeah. No matter how flaw, flawed or damaged they are, a good actor admires their character right yeah there's a person who is flawed um they don't see themselves as flawed they you have to understand their rationales for all of these awful decisions that they make how they show, how do they uh, how do they justify it how they justify it and man uh he chooses to end his life boy this is the first time that i uh I, I I always had to make sure that I did something to kind of step away from the role. I never subscribed to that. You know, actors go, oh, my God, every night I I have to be careful because I'm so connected. I'm like, man, say the last line and let's go to the bar. Right. You know, come on. Right. But this was the first time I was like, oh, this is what they're talking about. You start to look at that in yourself and you're like, I, I never thought I could even rash, have any sort of rationale of, you know. But that's writing, right? That's the writing. That's the mathematics of emotion. He got you there. He got yeah, absolutely, man. Mm. You guys, that led to that, which led to that. You know, and that's when you go, oh man, that's great writing. You know, the callback is because of something that um, there was a line. Um, oh, and this is a real acting moment. There was a line. Um, that Linda says to, to one of my sons at the end, you know, both of you, you're both good boys, right? Don't worry, you're both, both of you, both good boys. And that triggered something in me because my, my mother on her deathbed said, Wendell, I'm dying. You and your brother, stick together. That's your brother, right? You guys stay close to each other, both of you. 
And when I would hear that on stage, both, you're both good boys. It was, it was sense memory mm. of the moment of my mother telling me she was dying. And that fueled everything from that moment on for the rest of the play. It, was, it wasn't my line. It wasn't the situation that I had with my son. It was my wife saying, you're both good boys. That triggered something in me. Not only did it take me to my personal life, which my mother said to me on my deathbed, and at the same time, I realized what was at stake that I was losing my family, my two boys, reminded me of my father when he said I would never, my father left me and I would never abandon my kids. That triggered in me. Then at the same time, I realized that I had given them nothing. So I had abandoned them. And all of that in that split moment gave me everything that drove me at the end of the play to say, I'm out. And to make that decision to end your life because you think that's giving someone something. It's crazy. What an awful, what an awful, awful human rationale mm. to take your life because you think that's giving someone else their life when, when it isn't. Oh, when it isn't, when it isn't true. No, it's making it worse. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that, that's acting to me that, you know, creating the world so strong that it induces the behavior. I, I would get to the end of that play and I didn't, uh, I, I, I didn't have to think about, I didn't think about anything. I, it, it would take me, it would take over. But you recovered? <laughs> uh, no, I haven't. I'm holding on to it because I want to do it on Broadway. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I actually revisit the journey of the play all the time. I'm like, man, uh, uh, I did it over in London. I want to do it in New York, you know, so. Well, hopefully you get that book. chance. But like in, 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 when you're reflecting on it before, you know, when we reflect on our own lives and our own experiences, it seemed like, you know, you connected to your own uh, flaws and mistakes and how many people you hurt. I, I, I have to assume that, you know, this, this, the, the gift of being able to spend time with your 95 year old father puts a lot of that stuff in perspective. That was one of the things that, you know, uh, I think about all the time. I think, uh, as I said in the beginning of this, I was, uh, that's been the blessing of this pandemic that I get to spend time with him. I think of my mother who said, you know, take care of your father. She knew she was dying. Take care of your father. And it, uh, it connects me with her. You know, mm. every time I go, oh, let me go see my dad. I go, wait, man, hold on. You were given, you were given a gift, brother. So, uh, you know, uh, it, 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 it makes me appreciate it makes me appreciate life too. That's great. And so like what being like now, I know you went to school uh, with a lot of these musicians, but music's a big part of your life as well. I love music, man. When you grew up in new Orleans, it's great. You sing. Well, I was having a little falling mark, man. Ron. Yeah. That's my boy back there. That's a funny motherfucker. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> we, yeah. We, right. You've been here. You like, what did they say? Yeah. I can't understand. <laughs> that's some new Orleans shit there uh, and actually Ellis Marcellus taught me he said you know jazz is based on the emulation of human dialogue mm. you're treating fours we're having a conversation you know oh yeah and the improvisation that it comes from uh, and uh, and it's really the American aesthetic on display mm. right? yeah freedom within form you have to honor the form of the music but as a soloist you have the right as an individual to go 
as far as you want to go. I love it. It's out of the form. So it's freedom within form. You know, we're a nation of laws, but as an American, we celebrate individuality. Yeah. Right. Honor the form, honor the laws, but be yourself. Yeah. Be free. You know, it's a finite amount of notes with an infinite amount of combinations. Yeah. Improvisation. And then that taught me how to act. Right. Right. Because it's the finite amount of words, but with an infinite amount of ways of saying them and an infinite amount of ways of having those words affect you. Right. And that's jazz. And that's what the American aesthetic is unique to our experience. Right. It's the best display of the American aesthetic, how the two can coexist technical proficiency and exactness and order and form and laws and the, the form of chords of music or the written word and script, but the infinite amount of possibilities from that. And both can be honored. And that's the, that's the American aesthetic on display and so richly displayed in music. And when I think of music, I think of jazz. Now that happens in all stuff too, you know, man. Uh, I always go back to that one, that Led Zeppelin tune, which that's when I understood uh, theory or, or, or counting, really. Dun, 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 dun. But here's the thing about it. It's four and three, right? Right. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, da, da, da. But the, 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 the beat is on the four. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, five, right? Yeah. Three, three and four, and they meet up on 12, right? If you... And when I figured that out, I was like, wait a minute, right? Yeah. Right? And you sit there and you go, oh, well, what, what it displays is how it's free. Yeah. But it's thought out, too. Yeah. And you think it's a little off, like, you, oh, man, it's a little off right in the middle of that run. It's a little off, but it's not off. That, and then it comes back on the head, on the 12. Yeah. Three times four, 12. Right? Yeah. I remember when I understood how to do Shakespeare because of that. Really? I, literally, September 1981, Village Vanguard, I'm checking out Arthur Blythe. And I was at school at Juilliard, man, and, you know, Shakespeare was just kicking my ass. I just, the verse and all of that and understanding the iambic pentameter and how to use it and all. And that same challenge of how do you honor the form of it and how does that free you up? It feels restrictive, right? Right. I went to hear Arthur Blythe. I remember the tune. did it do it Right? And I loved it. And I, and I kept humming the tune and I was looking around when he started his solo. And Arthur Blythe was, you know, avant-garde. Yeah. He went all out, right? And they're swinging. And I, I'm looking around the club and I keep singing the melody. He's all over the place. And, and I kept... And when he came back to the top of the tune, we were right together. And then I went, oh, wait a minute. When I thought he was just playing all kinds of craziness, he knew exactly where he was at all times. Yeah. He kept the order of the tune and the form. And I was like, oh, that's it. You can do whatever the fuck you want. But, oh. You just got to land it. You got to honor that form. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, the two can happen. They can coexist. So that's my mantra. The two can coexist. And I'm like, oh, that's it. That's it. Huh. You know? 
So that and, and, that and that's art and that's real art and that's art. That art is also in science. That's the art of science. Sure. You find the art of something. <clears throat> it's that understanding of the complexity of it. The fact that you can honor form, that two things can coexist. You can honor form and at the same time be an individual, be free, be ex- uh, uh, exploring everything. And so when in whatever field you're in, you can say that's the art of it, right? That's what science was all about. High math. I remember trigonometry class. Mark, you have a proof and I have a proof. There's a truth and a reality at the end. You know, there's the answer. But you're going to get to it your way. I'm going to get to it my way. It doesn't change the reality at the end. The two can coexist. The truth of the matter is the same. Mm. That's why I tell people, man, all the time. They talk about policing, the police reform that's happening now. I said the art of policing is the fact that you should be able to police, check people, arrest people, hold people accountable, arrest criminals, prevent crime from happening, you know, hunt down and investigate and capture criminals all at the same time as not giving up your principal values and you don't have to do it with abuse. The two can coexist. Yeah. People are like, oh, well, you're taking that away from me now. What, I can't kneel on somebody's neck? I can't beat a motherfucker now? Right? I can't beat a motherfucker? Oh, well, now I can't police. And, oh, we got to retire. I got to leave. Like, you mean to tell me you can't do the two at the same time? Then that means that you're not American. Hmm. Because the American aesthetic is the fact that you have the ability to do the two at the same time. Right? right. That you have the ability to be free and inventive and, and, and explore a way of doing something. Community policing, do whatever you got to do. Be tight with a cat. Say, man, I understand why you did that. Turn around. I'm just going to arrest you for a second because you shouldn't have shot that dude. What are you talking about? Hey, man, we'll talk about it in the car down the street. I should be able to arrest you without, you know, and still get it done. Right. But honoring form, living within the accountability of the laws and stuff. So that's the reform we're talking about. And that's why I challenge people saying that's an American aesthetic. Those who cannot do that, you're saying that you can't be American. You can't be a nation of laws that gives you the freedom to be individuals. You can't honor the authority, the authority that you have and stay within the confines of some sort of some sort of civility and be a police. Then that means you're not a good police. That means you're not an American because the truest of Americans can say, I can honor this. I can honor form and be free within it because that's an American aesthetic. That's what the American aesthetic is all about. That's the greatest thing about the Constitution. We have the form of the Constitution, but it's amorphic and ever-changing because they say, man, you know this shit has to be better. We know we're fucking up. We all know this. Hey, man, we all got slaves. And we're talking about every man is free. Now you know it. So let, we're going to come up with this three-fifths of a man compromise and shit because you motherfuckers down south got slaves and you're making money and you don't want to give up that money. But, you know, we're going to set up this thing that it can change because we know it needs to change. But at the same time, we have some values in this shit that's going to actually serve us as we make the changes, right? Yeah. So as we, so when we honored John Lewis yesterday and put him, put him to rest, John Lewis literally can be said, as, as, as Obama said, right, he's a founder of America. He's one of the founding fathers because the principle of one vote, one man did not become real for everyone, not just black folks, for every American. It did not become a reality until 1965 when he got his ass beat 
on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and forced Johnson and the Congress to sign the Voting Rights Act. Right. Right. It did not. So the whole principle of America did not become actualized when it came to voting until 1965. Right. 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 Because, you know, 1790, anybody coming into the country couldn't vote. (laughs) Right. Uh, Finally, you know, emancipation happens. Uh, Black men get the right to vote. Right. And the South goes into every fucking machination to make sure they don't get it. Yeah. 1920 women finally get the right to vote. But it wasn't until 1965 where we said, okay, now we're going to put in protections to make sure all the bullshit that keeps everybody from getting to vote. Now all the bullshit is going to be put in check. Now everybody can vote. Yeah. So it's an amalgam. That's an American thing to be intelligent enough and have the facility to change, to direct it change, have order, and be free and liberal and inventive in your ability to change, that it doesn't hamper you. That's an American aesthetic. You see that in jazz. You see that in the art form that you have, making a motherfucker laugh. Yeah. And at the same time, when they go home, they say, man, I had a good time. Boy, Mark, that motherfucker made me laugh. But boy, that motherfucker made me think. Let me think about this shit. <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, that's kind of fucked up. You got to sneak it in. <laughs> yeah. But you're not even sneaking it in. I know. See, that's the American aesthetic about what you do, Mark, is, is the fact that the two coexist. Yeah. The fact that you have the liberal nature of making a motherfucker just laugh and laugh and laugh. And what they don't even realize is in that, you are educating, you are provoking thought, you're challenging them, you're challenging yourself. And then you're like, damn. Right? Yeah. And that's the art. That's art. Yeah. The form in which we reflect on who we are, decide what our values are, and then hopefully it moves you to act on them. Well said. I had too much coffee this morning. Oh, it's good. That was a good coffee run. That was good. I thought it was beautiful. It was a great riff. It was great, and it, you know, it was uh, it was exciting to watch for me. It was like a, I, you know, to start at Shakespeare and get to where you got. That was something, man. Oh, thank you. I <laughs> forgot to start with Shakespeare. Boy, that coffee's good. <laughs> what is this uh, work you're doing with this radio station down there? WBOK twelve thirty AM uh, has been around for seventy years, and when it came up for sale, um, three other of my partners said, "Man, we can't let this station just go." Uh, the only African-American on station in the state of Louisiana. Uh, it talk radio, mm-hmm. black talk radio. And imagine where New Orleans was 70 years ago. Mm. Right? Yeah. There's a fish fry at uh, <laughs> Peter Claver Church. <laughs> yeah. And uh, by the way, um, Martin Luther King is going to be here Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> right. Know? Yeah. Uh, um, and with Reverend Alexander, we're going to be marching on City Hall. Right. Jerome Smith just got back off of his freedom ride. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, uh, he, he got his ass beat in Anderson, Alabama. But uh, there's some writer from Paris, James Baldwin, invited him up to New York to meet with uh, the attorney general. Yeah. Robert Kennedy. And he told Robert Kennedy off. Ain't that some shit? You know? Right. This is talk radio. Uh, it's a legacy station. And when it came up for sale, we just couldn't let it go, hmm. you know? And uh, it was important enough and small enough, a thousand watt AM station. It was four of us buying a, a, a decent size, size house. Yeah. You know? And so 
you know, that's, that's what my parents' generation gave us. That's the Moses generation that gave us the blueprints to move forward, get handed us a baton. We're the Joshua generation. And so I've, we felt as though it's necessary to buy that station, make sure it continues being the voice of the community. So you didn't change the programming or anything. You just you just made sure no. it, it survives. Make sure it survives. We changed the program because we're trying to, you know, upgrade it and broaden it and stuff. Yeah. And I've, you know, I've had folks on. I've had David Allen Greer on. I've had Vanessa Williams, and uh, and and Sherilyn Eiffel came on. Oh, so you're hosting uh, a show on there now? Yeah, I host a show like uh, once a month. Oh, okay. Um, on Fridays. Uh, yeah, uh, the last last Friday of the month. Uh, I'm actually on right now, um, and uh, and uh, it's funny. I go, oh, yeah, that's nice, that's great, you know. But all politics are local, man. They're like, oh yeah, Wendell Pierce on. Oh, he had a conversation with Vanessa Williams. That's great. Uh, did you know Councilman Williams actually didn't do his taxes? I'm like, yeah. Did Did you hear the show with Vanessa Williams? Oh yeah, she's great. She's a wonderful woman. She can sing her ass. A great actress. But. If they don't fix that press drive right now, <laughs> I'm not going to vote for the mayor again. I'm like, uh, I'm talking to Vanessa Williams. Yeah. They're like, oh, yeah, baby, that's nice. Yeah, but. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I went over to get tested over at University of New Orleans. They didn't have but 20 tests. Yeah. And I'm not going to go back. And I'll tell you who to blame, the assessor, uh-huh. you know. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I done you know the local radio thing. That's the that's what keeps it alive. Is terrestrial radio is that is that local engagement? Yeah, it's great that you did that, man. They they people feel like it's their station, sure, which is what I love about it. You know, so now we don't know what anyone's going to do. So you're just going to be down there. Yeah, I'm going to be here, but um, I'm a digital artist at uh, UMS University. Is at University of Michigan. It's the University Musical Society it goes back a hundred years. Uh, a presenter like Lincoln Center or um, the Mark Taper Forum yeah. uh, in the Midwest. I'm a digital artist with them, which is trying to figure out how to present art in this new virtual reality. Okay. That we have. Yep. And uh, it looks like we're working on this, uh, but we're going to try to do live theater. Really? In this post or. Uh, pandemic world or in this pandemic world University of Michigan also has one of the great public health departments so what we're going to do is quarantine kind of do the bubble like the NBA or whatever Mm -hmm. two other actors and the director quarantine rehearse the play and when we go to perform the play anyone coming into the bubble when we get into tech rehearsal props or anything like that. I really actually said, we don't even need the props. They deliver them and we'll do our own offstage stuff. Right? Um, and then we uh, stream it, live stream it, but bring in an audience of like 20 or 30 and do the quick test with them. Whether it's, you know, the same 15 minute test result or a one day result if they decide to quarantine overnight, mm-hmm. you know, once you get the result. But I, I, we want to do the quick test and, and we're devising that study, the case study with the public health uh, uh, department of uh, Michigan, University of Michigan. So it'll be a study 
So to be the hybrid, which is what I think theater should is going to be. After this pandemic, there's no theater that should not consider uh, or put into its protocol setting up some cameras and filming it for uh, a live stream to go out. I've been surviving on the National Theater collection of plays that they've been doing the National Theater Live for about a decade now. And they, I think it just closed off. But um, I, I've been watching those plays, Barbershop Chronicle, Coriolanus, Streetcar Named Desire with Ben Foster, and uh, Gillian Anderson, Small Island, um, what was another? Yeah, the, yeah, those were the four. Ben Foster That's, did Streetcar? Ben Foster did Streetcar a couple of years ago in uh, in in London wow. with Gillian Anderson. How was he? Uh, uh, he was great. He was great. And uh, I got to see it because of that. I didn't even know that he had done it. And so it be, uh, that that's the future. And so so I, I think that there's going to be a hybrid for all theaters, no matter how small you are. You know, you're going to do tech rehearsal. Uh, in tech rehearsal, you need to do a camera rehearsal and then prepare to do the play and live stream it or actually record it to be seen later. People are questioning, well, you know, then that takes away from the live experience. I said, well, not really. It actually amplifies the live experience because people will see it and then say, oh, I, I wish I was there. Or I'll get there the next time I'm going to get there. I'm, I'll be tested so I can get in. it. It actually uh, make the live experience even more of a premium because it was only 30 people who were tested who were able to come and see it. Uh, and that's it's like the first run of a film. The first run of a film in the theaters is really almost just advertising for the, you know, the uh, tertiary, um, you know, DVD and on-demand market and all, you know, the ancillary yeah. market. I like that the uh, the idea that you know the, the there's a necessity to have at least the you know the thirty people there because that will engage the actors in the live symbiotic relationship that's supposed to take place within the space. And, Absolutely, and so it'll read that way. You know that the feelings will uh, of connectivity will will actually be there when it goes out and streams, right? Because it's a guidepost. You know that's the thing that I realized. Oh, I, I tell you another one that does it: uh, American Playhouse. Uh huh. All those, all of those on uh, PBS here. I, I watched the musical just the other day. Uh, she loves me, and uh, the the audience is like a, a, a guide track. You know? Yeah. Right. But anybody who's looking at it can see the. And then also for the actors, uh, that's the other partner in the scene. Yeah. Anybody in the theater will tell you that, that you, you rehearse the play. But once you bring it to an audience, they are, they are the additional uh, additional scene partner. You know, and they, they kind of let you know where the scene is going and you play off of them in the live performance also. And I think that's important. And so that's something that's unique. Uh, and I don't think it'll be lost in the streaming. It's actually going to be valued even more. That's great, man. It, it sounds like a, a great project and, and, and certainly uh, prescient and looking forward. Trying to figure it out, man. It, you know, yeah, it's what it's we're in. You got to keep keep innovating. Keep the two tracks, man. That's it, man. <laughs> See? Freedom within form, yeah, man. That's right. Hey, it's great talking to you, Wendell. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. I hope I made some sense today, Loved man. Loved it. It's great. I think you're you're a brilliant cat, man. I love your work and I love what you do. Be careful out there. You too. Take it easy. You too. What a great guy, right? 
What a great talk. We talked Zeppelin. Come on, we talked Zeppelin. Uh, Wendell Pierce, again, I just want to uh, mention it, is nominated for an Olivier Award as Best Actor for Death of a Salesman. And uh, it, was a real, it was a real pleasure talking to him. Now, I will play some guitar like I've played before. All the flying cats. <laughs> 